This is section four of The Gilded Age, a tale of today by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gilded Age, chapter four. Seventhly, before his voyage he should make his peace with God, satisfy his creditors if he be in debt, pray earnestly to God to prosper him in his voyage, and to keep him from danger, and if he be sui juris, he should make his last will and wisely order all his affairs, since many that go far abroad return not home. This good and Christian counsel is given by Martinus Zylerus in his epidemical canons before his itinerary of Spain and Portugal. Early in the morning Squire Hawkins took passage in a small steamboat, with his family and his two slaves, and presently the bell rang. The stage-plank was hauled in, and the vessel proceeded up the river. The children and the slaves were not much more at ease after finding out that this monster was a creature of human contrivance than they were the night before when they thought it the lord of heaven and earth. They started in fright every time the gauge-cocks sent out an angry hiss, and they quaked from head to foot when the mud-valves thundered. The shivering of the boat under the beating of the wheels was sheer misery to them but of course familiarity with these things soon took away their terrors, and then the voyage at once became a glorious adventure, a royal progress through the very heart and home of romance, a realization of their rosiest wonder-dreams. They sat by the hour in the shade of the pilot-house on the hurricane-deck, and looked out over the curving expanses of the river sparkling in the sunlight. Sometimes the boat fought the midstream current with a verdant world on either hand, and remote from both. Sometimes she closed in under a point, where the dead water and the helping eddies were, and shaved the bank so closely that the decks were swept by the jungle of overhanging willows, and littered with a spoil of leaves. Departing from these points, she regularly crossed the river every five miles, avoiding the bite of the great binds and thus escaping the strong current. Sometimes she went out and skirted a high bluff, sandbar, in the middle of the stream, and occasionally followed it up a little too far and touched upon the shoal water at its head, and then the intelligent craft refused to run herself aground, but smelt the bar, and straightway the foamy streak that streamed away from her bows vanished. A great foamless wave rolled forward and passed her underway, and in this instant she leaned far over on her side, shied from the bar, and fled square away from the danger like a frightened thing, and the pilot was lucky if he managed to straighten her up before she drove her head into the opposite bank. Sometimes she approached a solid wall of tall trees, as if she meant to break through it, but all of a sudden a little crack would open just enough to admit her, and away she would go ploughing through the chute, with just barely room enough between the island on one side and the mainland on the other. In this sluggish water she seemed to go like a racehorse. Now and then small log cabins appeared in little clearings, with the never-failing frowsy women and girls in soiled and faded linsey-woolsey leaning in the doors or against wood-piles and rail-fences, gazing sleepily at the passing show. Sometimes she found shoal water, going out at the head of those chutes or crossing the river, and then a deckhand stood on the bow and hove the lead, while the boat slowed down and moved cautiously. Sometimes she stopped a moment at a landing, and took on some freight or a passenger, 
while a crowd of slouchy white men and negroes stood on the bank and looked sleepily on with their hands in their pantaloons pockets of course for they never took them out except to stretch and when they did this they squirmed about and reached their fists up into the air and lifted themselves on tiptoe in an ecstasy of enjoyment when the sun went down it turned all the broad river to a national banner laid in gleaming bars of gold and purple and crimson and in time these glories faded out in the twilight and left the fairy archipelagos reflecting their fringing foliage in the steely mirror of the stream at night the boat forged on through the deep solitudes of the river hardly ever discovering a light to testify to a human presence mile after mile and league after league the vast bends were guarded by unbroken walls of forest that had never been disturbed by the voice or the footfall of man or felt the edge of his sacrilegious axe an hour after supper the moon came up and clay and washington ascended to the hurricane deck to revel again in their new realm of enchantment they ran races up and down the deck climbed about the bell made friends with the passenger dogs chained under the lifeboat tried to make friends with a passenger bear fastened to the verge staff but were not encouraged skinned the cat on the hog chains in a word exhausted the amusement possibilities of the deck then they looked wistfully up at the pilot-house and finally little by little clay ventured up there followed diffidently by washington the pilot turned presently to get his stern marks saw the lads and invited them in now their happiness was complete this cosy little house built entirely of glass and commanding a marvelous prospect in every direction was a magician's throne to them and their enjoyment of the place was simply boundless they sat them down on a high bench and looked miles ahead and saw the wooded capes fold back and reveal the bends beyond and they looked miles to the rear and saw the silvery highway diminish in its breadth by degrees and close itself together in the distance presently the pilot said by george yonder comes the amaranth a spark appeared close to the water several miles down the river the pilot took his glass and looked at it steadily for a moment and said chiefly to himself can't be the blue wing she couldn't pick us up this way it's the amaranth sure he bent over a speaking tube and said who's on watch down there a hollow unhuman voice rumbled up through the tube in answer i am second engineer good you want to stir your stumps now harry the amaranth's just turned the point and she's just a humpin herself too the pilot took hold of a rope that stretched out forward jerked it twice and two mellow strokes of the big bell responded a voice out on the deck shouted stand by down there with that lobber lead no i don't want the lead said the pilot i want you roust out the old man tell him the amaranth's coming and go and call jim tell him aye aye sir the old man was the captain he is always called so on steamboats and ships jim was the other pilot within two minutes both of these men were flying up the pilot-house stairway three steps at a jump jim was in his shirt-sleeves with his coat and vest on his arm he said i was just turning in where's the glass he took it and looked don't appear to be any night-hawk on the jack-staff it's the amaranth dead sure the captain took a good long look and only said damnation george davis the pilot on watch shouted to the night watchman on deck how's she loaded 
Two inches by the head, sir. Tain't enough, Captain shouted now. Call the mate. Tell him to call all hands and get a lot of that sugar forward. Put her ten inches by the head lively now. Aye, aye, sir. A riot of shouting and trampling floated up from below presently, and the uneasy steering of the boat soon showed that she was getting down by the head. The three men in the pilot-house began to talk in short, sharp sentences, low and earnestly. As their excitement rose, their voices went down. As fast as one of them put down the spy-glass, another took it up, but always with a studied air of calmness. Each time the verdict was, "'She's a-gaining!' the captain spoke through the tube. "'What steam are you carrying?' "'A hundred and forty-two, sir, but she's getting hotter and hotter all the time.' The boat was straining and groaning and quivering like a monster in pain. Both pilots were at work now, one on each side of the wheel, with their coats and vests off, their bosoms and collars wide open, and the perspiration flowing down their faces. They were holding the boat so close to the shore that the willows swept the guards almost from stem to stern. "'Stand by,' whispered George. "'All ready,' said Jim, under his breath. "'Let her come.' The boat sprang away from the bank like a deer, and darted in a long diagonal toward the other shore. She closed in again, and thrashed her fierce way along the willows as before. The captain put down the glass. "'Lord, how she walks up on us! I do hate to be beat!' "'Jim,' said George, looking straight ahead, watching the slightest yawing of the boat, and promptly meeting it with the wheel, "'how'll it do to try murderer's shoot?' "'Well, it's—' uh, it's taking chances. How was the cottonwood stump on the false point below Boardman's Island this morning? Water just touching the roots. Well, it's pretty close work. That gives six feet scant in the head of murderer's shoot. We can just barely rub through it if we hit it exactly right. But it's worth trying. She don't dare tackle it, meaning the amaranth. In another instance the Boreas plunged into what seemed a crooked creek, and the amaranth's approaching lights were shut out in a moment. Not a whisper was uttered now, but the three men stared ahead into the shadows, and two of them spun the wheel back and forth with anxious watchfulness while the steamer tore along. The chute seemed to come to an end every fifty yards, but all was opened out in time. Now the head of it was at hand. George tapped the big bell three times, two leadsmen sprang to their posts and in a moment their weird cries rose on the night air, and were caught up and repeated by two men on the upper deck. No bottom! Deep four! Half three! Quarter three! Mark under water three! Half twain! Quarter twain! Davis pulled a couple of ropes. There was a jingling of small bells far below. The boat's speed slackened and the pent steam began to whistle and the gauge-cocks to scream, "'By the Mark Twain! Quarter-less Twain! Eight and a half! Eight feet! Seven and a half!' Another jingling of little bells, and the wheels ceased turning altogether. The whistling of the steam was something frightful now. It almost drowned all other noises. "'Stand by to meet her!' George had the wheel hard down and was standing on a spoke. All ready! The boat hesitated, seemed to hold her breath, as did the captain and pilots, and then she began to fall away to starboard, and every eye lighted. Now then, meet her! Meet her! Snatch her! 
the wheel flew to port so fast that the spokes blended into a spider-web the swing of the boat subsided she steadied herself seven feet seven six and a half six feet six f bang she hit the bottom george shouted through the tube spread her wide open wail it at her pow wow chow the escape pipes belched snowy pillars of steam aloft the boat ground and surged and trembled and slid over into mark twain quarter her tap 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 to signify lay in the leads and away she went flying up the willow shore with the whole silver sea of the mississippi stretching abroad on every hand no amaranth in sight ha <laughs> ha boys we took a couple of tricks that time said the captain and just at that moment a red glare appeared in the head of the chute and the amaranth came springing after them well i swear jim what is the meaning of that i'll tell you what's the meaning of it that hail we had at napoleon was wash hastings wanting to come to cairo and we didn't stop he's in that pilot-house now showing those mud turtles how to hunt for easy water that's it i thought it wasn't any slouch that was running that middle bar in hog eye bend if it's wash hastings well what he don't know about the river ain't worth knowing a regular gold leaf kid glove diamond breastpin pilot wash hastings is we won't take any tricks off of him old man i wish i'd a stop for him that's all the amaranth was within three hundred yards of the boreas and still gaining the old man spoke through the tube what's she carrying now a hundred and sixty-five sir how's your wood pine all out cypress half gone eating up cottonwood like pie break into that rosin on the main deck pile it in the boat can pay for it soon the boat was plunging and quivering and screaming more madly than ever but the amaranth's head was almost abreast the boreas astern how's your steam now harry hundred and eighty-two sir break up the casks of bacon in the forward hold pile it in levy on that turpentine in the fantail drench every stick of wood with it the boat was a moving earthquake by this time how's she going now a hundred and ninety-six and still a-swelling water below the middle gauge-cocks carrying every pound she can stand nigger roosting on the safety valve good how's your draft bully every time a nigger heaves a stick of wood into the furnace he goes out the chimney with it the amaranth drew steadily up till her jack-staff breasted the boreas's wheelhouse climbed along inch by inch till her chimneys breasted it crept along further and further till the boats were wheel to wheel and then they closed up with a heavy jolt and locked together tight and fast in the middle of the big river under the flooding moonlight a roar and a hurrah went up from the crowded decks of both steamers all hands rushed to the guards to look and shout and gesticulate the weight careened the vessels over toward each other officers flew hither and thither cursing and storming trying to drive the people amidships both captains were leaning over their railings shaking their fists swearing and threatening black volumes of smoke rolled up and canopied the scene delivering a rain of sparks upon the vessels two pistol shots rang out and both captains dodged unhurt and the packed masses of passengers surged back and fell apart while the shrieks of women and children soared above the intolerable din and then there was a booming roar a thundering crash and the riddled amaranth dropped loose from her hold and drifted helplessly away 
Instantly the fire-doors of the Boreas were thrown open, and the men began dashing buckets of water into the furnaces, for it would have been death and destruction to stop the engines with such a head of steam on. As soon as possible the Boreas dropped down to the floating wreck, and took off the dead, the wounded, and the unhurt, at least all that could be got at, for the whole forward half of the boat was a shapeless ruin, with the great chimneys lying crossed on top of it, and underneath were a dozen victims imprisoned alive and wailing for help. While men with axes worked with might and main to free these poor fellows, the Boris's boats went about, picking up stragglers from the river. And now a new horror presented itself. The wreck took fire from the dismantled furnaces. Never did men work with a heartier will than did those stalwart braves with the axes. But it was of no use. The fire ate its way steadily, despising the bucket brigade that fought it. It scorched the clothes, it singed the hair of the axemen, it drove them back, foot by foot, inch by inch. They wavered, struck a final blow in the teeth of the enemy, and surrendered. And as they fell back they heard prisoned voices saying, "'Don't leave us! Don't desert us! Don't! Don't do it!' And one poor fellow said, I am Henry Worley, striker of the Amaranth. My mother lives in St. Louis. Tell her a lie for a poor devil's sake, please. Say I was killed in an instant, and never knew what hurt me. Though God knows I've neither scratched nor bruised this moment. It's hard to burn up in a coop like this, with the whole wide world so near. Good-bye, boys. We've all got to come to it at last, anyway." The Boreas stood away out of danger and the ruined steamer went drifting down the stream, an island of wreathing and climbing flame that vomited clouds of smoke from time to time, and glared more fiercely, and sent its luminous tongues higher and higher after each emission. A shriek at intervals told of a captive that had met his doom. The wreck lodged upon a sandbar, and when the Boreas turned the next point on her upward journey it was still burning with scarcely abated fury. When the boys came down into the main saloon of the Boreas, they saw a pitiful sight, and heard a world of pitiful sounds. Eleven poor creatures lay dead, and forty more lay moaning, or pleading, or screaming, while a score of good Samaritans moved among them doing what they could to relieve their sufferings, bathing their chinless faces and bodies with linseed oil and lime-water, and covering the places with bulging masses of raw cotton that gave to every face and form a dreadful and unhuman aspect. A little wee French midshipman of fourteen lay fearfully injured, but never uttered a sound till a physician of Memphis was about to dress his hurts. Then he said, "'Can I get well? You need not be afraid to tell me.' "'No, I, I am afraid you cannot.' "'Then do not waste your time with me. Help those that can get well.' But. Help those that can get well. It is not for me to be a girl. I carry the blood of eleven generations of soldiers in my veins." The physician, himself a man who had seen service in the navy in his time, touched his hat to this little hero, and passed on. The head engineer of the Amaranth, a grand specimen of physical manhood, struggled to his feet, a ghastly spectacle, and strode towards his brother, the second engineer, who was unhurt. He said, you were on watch. You were boss. You would not listen to me when I begged you to reduce your steam. Take that! Take it to my wife and 
Tell her it comes from me by the hand of my murderer. Take it, and take my curse with it to blister your heart a hundred years, and may you live so long. And he tore a ring from his finger, stripping the flesh and skin with it, threw it down, and fell dead. But these things must not be dwelt upon. The Boreas landed her dreadful cargo at the next large town, and delivered it over to a multitude of eager hands and warm southern hearts, a cargo amounting by this time to thirty-nine wounded persons and twenty-two dead bodies. And with these she delivered a list of ninety-six missing persons that had drowned or otherwise perished at the scene of the disaster. A jury of inquest was impaneled, and after due deliberation and inquiry, they returned the inevitable American verdict which has been so familiar to our ears all the days of our lives. Nobody to blame. Note. The incidents of the explosion are not invented. They happened just as they are told. The Authors. End of chapter 4